I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling. And I'm Robin Allender. And we've got a superb episode coming up today with the journalist, music writer, author Laura Barton, which is uh, yeah, which is really really fun. This one I liked it a lot. Yeah, I've re- I've liked Laura Barton's writing for a long time, and I think she writes really brilliantly about and kind of unashamedly emotionally about music, mm. which is what I, I've always really liked. And I think, as you sort of say in the in the podcast, I'm, I, f- I feel like I'm kind of a similar generation. So it feels like we kind of grew up on a lot of the same things, which kind of includes the kind of Beatles revivalism of the 90s. So it was a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, and she's also recently had a, a fantastic BBC radio series um, about where well, there's a couple of episodes, one's about the sort of intensity of falling in love with music when you're the age of 17 yeah just 17 yeah yeah so we talk about that bit and then um there's also a brilliant episode about sad music and um and and what that sort of means and the people who have a kind of attraction to the the melancholy the bbc radio 4 show is called notes on music and there's a brilliant uh, episode about happy and sad music and what makes sad music and one of the things we talk about in this episode is this kind of the idea that this kind of uh, descending chord sequence or de- descending line is often something that you find in melancholy music. And, uh, you know, we go right back to Purcell or Purcell. You know, I say how often it's used in Beatles songs, and then I can only think of one example, which is Dear Prudence. So I've got the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> get the guitar. No, there's loads. I mean, I mean, there's hundreds. There's hundreds. So the thing is that's interesting is Paul McCartney does this thing a lot, which is called a line cliché. Have you heard of a line cliché? I don't think I have. It's where you get a dis- a one chord, but a line descends all the way down. Oh, right. Through. I just so didn't know there was, that was the yeah. name for it. So... You know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a good one. Uh, you've got Eleanor Rigby... Fixing a hole. You know, it's all yeah. over Paul McCartney's stuff. The intro of Strawberry Fields. I mean, yeah. it's probably more in more songs than not. In some, exactly. In but that, that's what's interesting because it goes back to what we were talking about with Jeff Lloyd. John in India seemed to start doing that as well because you've got Dear Prudence and, you know... And you've got uh, Cry Baby Cry. You know, so Mm. I just love that kind of, there must have been some kind of interaction happening there because it seems like John was uh, less technically inclined to do those kind of chord progressions than Paul. But something, mm. I do think something happened in India. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and we go into a lot of detail about why that sort of might be 
a, a sort of slightly kind of lachrymose <laughs> cold gash in a yeah. way. But um, yeah, that's, that's just one of loads of great chats. I mean, um, it's not one of our most beetle heavy ones. We go really mm. around the houses, but it, mm. it always ends up coming back. One connection being that Laura once had a, a fat cat called Paul McCartney. Yeah. So, you know, there's always an avenue to get back to home. <laughs> There's also some really great chats about um, interviewing some of her heroes, including Van Morrison, um, which didn't go particularly to plan. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we cover loads of stuff. It's mm. all really great. So, um, yeah, we really hope you enjoy this one. Yeah. Before we get started, I'm just going to read out a couple of emails. Um, got quite a few good ones this week. Um, so keep sending them in to jack at homespunsounds.com or you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. Uh, this email is from Leo Humphreys who says, Hello! Exclamation mark. Recently, while down a Beatles Wikipedia rabbit hole, I found myself on a page for a collection of Beatles oldies, uh, the Beatles' first compilation album released in December 1966. Which we talked about in the last series of the show at some point, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. one that your dad had or something. My na- yeah, my nana had it. It was nana- it was just very weird that it came out there and it was called it was called Oldies, sort of wild. Yeah. You know, then there was the songs the that could been out li- yeah, less than ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. So he says there in the track list, quite inexplicably, considering this was supposedly a greatest hits album, was a track I had not only never heard before, I had never heard it spoken of before. I immediately put Bad Boy on my Spotify and for the first time ever listened to this rock and roll cover of Larry, uh, Larry Williams' song, led by John Lennon in full Dizzy Miss Lizzy mode. Okay, so it's not Carnival of Light, but the fact that this track hadn't revealed itself to me until now, having been a massive Beatles nerd since I was 15, was quite mind-blowing. Listen past the perfunctory and quite badly overdubbed lead guitar interjections. (laughs) Maybe George was knackered from clubbing with Bob Dylan after his Royal Albert Hall performance the night before this session. Good research, Leo. Yeah, wow. Um, And the track was a blistering reminder of what an electrifying live at the boys must have been in their cavern in Hamburg days. Yeah. Um, Aside from its first release in 1965 on Beatles 6, an album released only in North America, and Golden Oldies, deleted from the Beatles catalogue in 1987, the only other place this track saw a release was on the 1988 Past Masters CD box set. Mm. As someone born in the UK in 1990... This goes to explain how Bad Boy slipped through the cracks for me until now. Yeah. I wonder if you or your listeners have any other examples of these ghosts in the canon. <laughs> Commercially released tracks only, please. Bootlegs don't count. <laughs> <laughs> really driving this section. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's great. I, I remember sort of seeing that in that box set. It's not one that I owned, but it doesn't spring to mind. I'm going to investigate uh, yeah, that. Yeah, I, I remember it being on Passmasters, but I, I always assumed it was a B-side of some kind, but obviously, yeah, but that, you know. Yeah, yeah it was a regular in those sort of crazy, crazily long Hamburg sets where they used to mm. play, you know, 50, 60 different songs. Anyway, he says, thank you both for the fantastic podcast, which has become one of the highlights of my week. P.S. I'm 90% sure Jack was at my pub quiz at the Railway Tavern in <laughs> Dalston last week. If so, I hope you had fun despite the lack of Beatles questions. And if not, uh, ignore this bit. Well, Leo, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I was there. Great. Um, came second. And uh, won, a, won a bottle of wine, which I definitely shouldn't have drunk on the <laughs> night. Um, but yeah, it was an excellent quiz. If anyone lives in East London, then head to the uh, Railway Table. Also an excellent pub. Have you ever been to the Railway in Dulcet? No, I haven't. No, that sounds fun. We should Absolute do the quiz. cracker. A five-star yeah, pub. Let's head down and do the quiz. I think that's an interesting yeah. question. I mean, because like, I feel like I've heard every Beatles song that's been released now. But like, I do think if you're a casual listener... 
then definitely there are, there are always things that will surprise you. I mean, I think there are, you know, it feels like the White Album particularly has got little hidden corners that if you if you're not a huge if you're not hugely familiar with the back catalogue, they can really surprise you. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then I mean, even those sort of the remixes—not even the remixes, but some of the sort of stereo stuff that I know the mono versions better. I find mm. little, you know, bits of hidden horn parts on Abbey Road that I haven't heard before or whatever. Mm. You know, but uh, yeah, for a whole a whole song that has been released on a best of, or ostensibly a best of, that is pretty extraordinary. Um, I'm just going to read one more quick one out because I really like this one. Mm. Um, it's from uh, Graham McCary, and he says, Hi, Jack. Uh, only recently discovered your own personal Beatles, but now enjoying it immensely. Felt moved by Matthew Crosby- Crosby's episode to share this with you. I also have a great affection for the Give My Regards to Broad Street soundtrack. Having found the cassette in my local record shop whilst at the height of my initial teenage Beatles obsession... A couple of years ago, in the Oxfam record shop on Victoria Road in Glasgow, I found it on vinyl for the princely sum of two ninety nine, and had to have it. Uh, whilst queuing to pay for it, I discovered that it had been signed. I opted to stay quiet about this and made my purchase as quickly as possible. This is pretty incredible. Uh, Once back out on the street, it was quickly apparent to me that it was a phony signature. (laughs) Not only does it not look like the great man's distinctive signature, but it was also misspelled. (laughs) Misspelled Paul Um, McCartney. And he's sent some photos of it as well. That's Uh, great. It's uh, spelled Paul Paul McCartney with one C. Ah. yeah, probably a bit of a giveaway. Yeah. Um, anyway, That's I mean, great. to be honest, I don't know how much a genuinely signed version of Give My Regards to Broad Street would match. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, it just added to the extra layer of delight for me, and I'll treasure it. Uh, on my next visit, I picked up Ram. Result. Mm. Keep up the great work, guys, and thank you. Thank you, Graham. Uh, what a great email. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's good. That reminds me, of, I remember being on tour once, and those that we were staying, I think there was a venue where they had a guest book. And you know you got they got bands to sign there, and someone had written U two, and they just written Bono, the Edge, the drummer, the bass player, <laughs> <laughs> which was good. Uh, was nice. funny. I yeah. mean, phony Beatles signatures. There's a lot of fun to be had there. Right. Yeah. Um, I bought a copy of a Jimi Hendrix album when I was in my teens that was signed by like four different people, hmm. and it looked like. It was like, why would anyone sign this? And I think it was signed by someone, obviously not Jimi Hendrix, or, but it might have been like the engineer or something like oh, that. Right. That's cool. Um, but yeah, I might, I might throw that one out there on social, see if anyone knows what that is. If you want to hear an extended version of this episode and all our other episodes, as well as bonus content, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles. Um, we went to Abbey Road this week with Ellis James, and uh, we've got an episode recorded about our reaction to that, which was an unbelievable evening that we won't go into here. But if you want to hear that, then sign up. And we've also got a few uh, surplus Your Own Personal Beatles mugs uh, which we usually just give to guests so they're in high demand but um, we've got a few left over so I will raffle one of those off uh, once a month for Patreon subscribers so as if it wasn't enough to be excited about being (laughs) on Patreon that's a little extra goodie for you uh, one more bit of housekeeping. There's a bit in the show where we talk about Graham Coxon writing the soundtrack of a show. Neither of us could remember who, it, what show it was, but it was The End of the Effing World um, on Channel 4 now on Netflix. So, yeah, if you're wondering. 
But anyway, we won't keep you any longer. Um, please do uh, keep on sending your emails in. Follow us on social media and rate the show. Um, that's very helpful if you're an Apple Podcasts listener. Um, it really does help us get up the charts so other people can find us and we get you know featured and all of that. So really, really helpful. And uh, we'll be back at the end. Enjoy this fantastic episode with the brilliant Laura Barton. So this week on Your Own Personal Beatles, we're delighted to welcome the journalist, broadcaster and novelist Laura Barton. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Hello. How's it going? How's your week been? <laughs> my week has been bananas, as I've been telling you off mic. But what I didn't tell you um, was my favourite part of the day, which was um, I was, I've written, I think it's four articles today, and um, I'd written one Wolf Alice interview. And then I was finishing a Duran Duran interview and my doorbell rang and um, I went to it and there was a man saying it was a wardrobe delivery. And apparently I had a wardrobe delivery. I had literally, I was like, what wardrobe? I did actually have a wardrobe delivery today and it's now just standing in my hall. Um, I don't know what to do with it. I hadn't cleared a space for it. I just then just had to crack on with my Duran Duran. Can I guess two options that have caused this? One is that you ordered a wardrobe while drunk and the other is you ordered <laughs> the other is that you ordered it on maid and it takes so long to get there that you forgot you'd ordered uh, it i think it's more likely the first because i've measured it and it doesn't fit in the space that <laughs> it's meant to fit in. <laughs> yeah. so it's just a whole wardrobe now i don't know what I'm okay yeah well then we all anyway. need a whole wardrobe don't we yeah, yeah. so duran 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 am i right in thinking graham coxon has joined duran duran i just saw he this. has I don't think it's a permanent That's fixture, nice. but, he, but he has, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, the tracks are really wow. good. Yeah, they were very nice to interview. He's not really a natural fit, I would have thought, would slip into Duran Duran. Is he doing it just a record? He's not sort of going on tour with them or anything? Um, they're only playing, I think, in the autumn, sort of Isle of Wight and stuff, so I think he'll be on those. I don't know for certain, wow. maybe speaking nice. out of turn. But, um, yeah, I used to live quite close to Graham and know him a little bit, and... Oh. Um, Having spent two hours in the company of Duran Duran, I cannot see that personality (laughs) intersection. But um, yeah, I think it'll be. He is really good on it. He's very good. Have you ever come across his um, Beatles supergroup that he's in with uh, Matt Bellamy and some other people? I've never seen it, but uh, I have heard thereof, yes. Um, I think you? they only sort of play like celebrity uh, birthday bashes and things. <laughs> Quite rightly, but, yes. um, not, yeah. <laughs> but again, Matt Bellamy and Graham Coxon not really a, no, no, no. a media connection. Together. Yeah, no, he's a shapeshifter. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, he's done quite a lot of the jobbing. He's kind of a bit like the Johnny Marr kind of of, of, of his era in a way because he's done sort of quite a few kind of sessiony jobs, hasn't he? And things like he that. He has, yeah, yeah. And he didn't. He yeah. also do the soundtrack to. Um, Oh, yeah, it was something really good. I know. Yeah, yeah it was like the it two was. kids who would just kind of go on the run or whatever it is. That makes it sound rubbish, but it was quite funny. It was British. Anyway, it was really good. So you, you, you've mentioned uh, in an email before that um, you came on that growing up in the Northwest, there was a sort of sense of ownership of the Beatles and uh, a, mm. a kind of a deep connection, I suppose. was that So what was it like growing up? We're kind of similar age, I think. So what, what was it like kind of growing up in, in that area? I do wonder if it's still the same now. I feel very much I grew up in a sort of mm. post Beatles Northwest, if that makes sense. So I think, um, mm. you know, our parents, they were still the band for for all our parents' generation. And in school, 
sometimes sort of in primary school or whatever, you would have to sing Beatles songs. Sort of, I don't really know why, <laughs> but it was just sort of a, a glue. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was a bit like in the 80s in the Northwest, you had to love either Liverpool or Everton. That was sort of the law. Mm. And you had to love the Beatles. Um, that, yeah. was, that was kind of it. And, but there were so many things that I didn't know about them. They were just sort of a fixed point. But I mean, I knew my mum had been to see them play in Wigan and um, back in the day. Wow. Is that a venue that still exists? I don't or think Or did so. when you were growing no. up? No, I don't think really any venues exist in Wigan. I think when the casino went yeah. and burned everything down and built a shopping centre. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny when you look at some of the venues that were on those, especially the early tours, um, in sort mm. of more provincial places, and they're all just banks and post offices now, mm. and uh, the yeah. IMTK Maxes and things. There's hardly any of them that's so still, many TK Maxes. still there. <laughs> I mean, I think it may have been what became the cinema, mm. the Rio cinema, right. but I may be wrong about that. And does your mum remember much about it, the, the gig? Or she was it? She just... was right down the front, which is really uncharacteristic for my mum. <laughs> right. It's, that was the weirdest thing about the entire story, just imagining yeah. my tiny little mother down the front. Um, <laughs> was she a full-on Beatlemaniac screaming? No, and no she wasn't. I mean, she liked them. That she, they loved music, but it wasn't... You know, we weren't a full-on Beatles household either, you know. I remember probably listening to more solo Paul McCartney mm. when I was very mm. young. And, yeah, Sergeant Pepper. I mean, that was a mm. fixture. Where did you two grow up? Um, I grew I grew up in in Bristol, and Jacks mm-hmm. grew up in Oxford. And I'm sort of yeah Oxfordshire yeah. So no sort of yeah no, nothing to really answer the uh, the Beatles in Oxford really, and especially before my time. Well, I think that this is the funny. My dad was going to see, went saw the queue at the Colston Hall to buy a ticket, but it was too long, so he just didn't bother. But I think weirdly, <laughs> your dad wasn't. Didn't your dad go to that gig? Jack. My dad did go to see it, and I incorrectly t- said it was uh, when they were supporting Helen Shapiro, but he told me the other day it was actually Brendel Lee, oh, right, nice. um, as they pronounce oh. it in Bristol. Yeah, Brendel Lee. Um, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, the Colson Hall. And, but he wasn't really into it. He was My dad, by that point, was a bit of a sort of unfashionable. He was in sort of Duke Ellington and things like that. Right. And uh, oh, right, yeah, the Beatles yeah. was a sort of bit of a passing phase that was a bit naff and hysterical. <laughs> um, How right he was. What, yeah. what what a waste! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but so the, yeah. with Solo McCartney, then you said in in your email that you you had a sort of bizarre um, misconception that you thought the the McCartney albums were banned or something. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, when I think back to when I was little, now I do think about these peculiar stories that I sort of believed were true, like I thought my dad had played cricket yeah. for Lancashire, for example, for a really long time. I mean, of course he hadn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, in a similar mm. way, uh, we had this family stereo in a sort of antique sideboard. And for some reason, the tapes, mm. some of the tapes were slightly under the sideboard. And I didn't know why they were. And I think probably somebody said flippantly, they were hiding from, from the police or something. And I was like, oh, God. You know, I was only about five. But I carried this sort of for a really long time. Mm. And I I suppose it melded with things like... Yeah, justice. I was always scared. Do you remember in the 80s and they would have those things about you must not pirate, copy a tape? Yeah. You wouldn't steal a handbag. Yeah. And, And 
I think I just <laughs> melded all these things together so that Paul McCartney... I think in my head, Paul McCartney had left the Beatles and sh- was not allowed, therefore, to record anymore. But he'd secretly made these albums. I think now I, now I dwell on it. That was probably the narrative I'd created. Right. right. So yeah. he's a sort of outlaw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The outlaw of Ram. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Do you still love Ram? Like all these years later because it's definitely one of those albums where it's gone through phases of being appraised and mm. then wildly overpraised I think where you know rightfully so but it's just strange how McCartney's reputation particularly McCartney 2 where it was like such mm. a throwaway and sort of you know it's it's debatable whether people really hated him that much in the 80s I don't think anyone really ever hated him. but like it's weird how those albums are so cool cool yeah, now yeah. you know Ram and 2 do you still mm. do you do you still like them yeah or, or absolutely like... I don't listen to them that often isn't Ram's just about to be re- released mm. right yeah I think it's his 50th birthday yesterday I seem to be getting a lot of press releases about it I'm just like <laughs> right, um, yeah. yes um, I do still love it, yeah. I do still love a lot of that music. I mean, it's the music of childhood along with sort of Super Trump and John Betjeman and mm. all that kind of stuff. So it, it oh, occupies right. that strange space in your head, you know, when you're... What, ban- Banana um, Blush, the Betjeman album? Banana Blush and Late Flowering Love, yes. Yeah, oh, well, they're, they're um, fantastic. Yeah, they're amazing, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's funny that, isn't it? Because they're so... I mean, yeah, my dad had those on vinyl as well and... Yeah, it's just weird. Everything's such a, a mishmash, isn't it, of your parents' record collection, but has such a deep mm. impact, and you realise afterwards that some of those records were quite weird. <laughs> yeah, there's no hierarchy at all either, is there, when, yeah. you're, when you're a kid? It's yeah. just all... They, they're all just music. It's all just music. Um, and I do think mm. those... Because mm. I think the Betjeman ones probably the first records I ever heard. And mm. I think that probably did meld a lot with sort of music and words in my brain it must have done um, right but yeah, yeah so that mm. and a lot of van morrison mm. and tubular bells which i still can't listen to to this day really I can't. I, I, it makes yeah it really upsets me. oh right <laughs> so it's got bad connotations from childhood or it's just you o- mm. over listened to or just i have really distinct memories before i could speak and i spoke really late in life right. i was one of those weird children and um, before I could speak, I just wanted them to turn it off. Turn the fucking mic off. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted them to turn it off. Wow, all the time. that's... And they, inc- they played it all Incredible. Time. What a vivid memory. Wow. Mm. Was, what good. was it about yeah. it that you found sort of upsetting? Was it just sonically or... And you just... Yeah, yeah, it's too jangly. Mm. <laughs> it's too, too much. There was a lovely interview with Suggs from Madness where he talked about the Betjeman records and what an influence they were mm. on Madness which you wouldn't hear at all but there is something of that very Englishness and the kind of and and also mm. you know Suggs was saying he's talking about places in London he knew even though it was a different generation it's quite it's lo- they're really lovely do you know them Jack those Betjeman I know I was about to say um, I'll, I'll be the voice of the sort <laughs> of uh, uneducated being. I thought you were talking about the poet he is yeah he did he did a couple he is of, the same yeah, he, right. did, yeah. he did a couple of um, records with a really with good Jim Parker yeah that really good sort of session band and they're kind of very beautiful sort of baroque pop arrangements behind right okay uh, yeah so there's even some sort of slightly reggae numbers mm. in there. I mean it's it's peculiar yeah yeah it was they were reviewed in the NME they were like really you know, 
they're just sat between lots of spaces, but they're really beautiful. Yeah. In among the silver birches, winding ways of tarmac wander, and the signs to bussock bottom, tussock wood, and windy break, gabled lodges, tile-hung churches, catch the lights of our Lagonda as we drive to Wendy's party, lemon curd and Christmas cake. I mean, in a funny way, I mean, it's not an amazing comparison, but they're almost like Serge Gainsbourg in the sense that he was right. he was yeah. narrating words over the top of these amazing session musicians, and the result's quite okay. weird, but works, yeah. you know. But yeah, something like that. I was going to ask you, so we, we've, we both really enjoyed your radio series, Notes on Music, which you Thank can you. listen to on iPlayer at the moment. And um, you started that with an episode called 17, mm-hmm. which mentioned when I saw her standing there. Yes. So what, what, what drove you to kind of create that episode? What do you think is so important about the age 17? Um, I had actually pitched it as an article to The Guardian about 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> And that their music our editor <laughs> okay. didn't didn't see the the value in it. And I was like, um, and then we got asked to do this series, and the producer and I had talked about a couple of ideas already, and we needed one more, and and we came up with this. Um, I think it was something. Mm. It was a producer I've worked with quite a bit, and I think it was probably a subject we talked about quite a bit. And we both interviewed Sharon Van Etten, and we both loved the Seventeen song. I'm all, I loved being 17 and I'm always really fascinated by uh, music that we listen to as teenagers and sort of how that shapes us and all mm. that kind of stuff and, and, and how that's actually still a lot of the sort of um, attraction even to later music. We're still sort of always, there's a little wisp of that in a lot of the music we continue to like for the rest of our lives, I think. So, um, mm. Uh, yeah, it was sort of all about that. And then there were just so many bloody songs that mentioned 17. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting you loved being 17. I, I definitely had a more... Because really? I was li- listening to that the other day and thinking about all the records that meant so much to me when I was 17. I think I was very ambivalent about being 17, but definitely musically and, and in terms of the Beatles. I think 17 was when I discovered Revolver, mm. which had always uh, eluded me. So that album is... Sort of being, you know, smoking fags, driving around in a little Peugeot 205 down the Bambi Road and just yeah, yeah. being horrendous. Good. But, um, yeah, I love that line that one of your contributors says that it's like uh, being 17 is like playing at real life with live ammunition. Yeah, David Hepworth said that. Which is it's perfect. The, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the best way of summing up what it is to be <laughs> 17 that I, I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can imagine if you were 17 and sort of, God, I'm almost worried about how obsessive I would have been with the Beatles <laughs> if I had been 17 when Revolver actually did come yeah. out. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I was probably not dissimilar in a way in that I'd probably parked the Beatles for years. And then when I was 17 and started, I mean, I started going out to pubs and clubs and things quite young, but um, probably when I was around the 17 is when I met people who were really obsessive about the Beatles when I went to sixth form. And when they started mm. playing them more in clubs again. And I, I do remember being at somebody's birthday party and they'd hired like a sort of hall kind of thing, you know, like a church hall. And um, they were playing, um, why don't we do it in the road? And the idea 
of dancing to mm. that was just huge to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was beyond Sergeant Pepper Amazing. at that point for me. Yeah. So what was your seven, your sort of seventeen-year-old self's biggest sort of musical obsession? Was it? Were you already into sort of Springsteen and things at that point? I, I was, but I was very into Pixies. I was very into Velvet Underground, mm. probably Pulp. I mean, it was Britpop. It was sort of that sort of grunge going yeah. into Britpop era then. So everyone you yeah. could possibly imagine mm. then. And my friend, my best friend Joe and I blagged our way um, into the studios in Manchester for where uh, Mark Radcliffe used to record his show. And we sat in on sessions by oh, like wow. Belly mm. and the Blue Tones and things like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, that was such a. F I mean, yeah, as I said before, like the reason I, I think I love your writing so much is because it's a similar. I, you know, I feel like I'm forty, so it's a similar kind of generational thing. Where mm -hmm. for me, it's you know, I, th I remember you talking once about wearing your Adidas shell top. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. uh, but there is that kind of the the, the Britpop thing, which is obviously Beatles, and mm. then you know all those kind of things, and then kind of growing up and you've got more into the like Americana thing and that's definitely where my musical tastes mm -hmm. went but but definitely Mark, Mark Radcliffe and Mark Riley that was so formative for me because it was a it was an incredible radio station because radio show because as well as all this music you'd have you know Mark Kermode coming on talking about films and mm -hmm. Simon Armitage talking about books I feel like it was just my uh, my sentimental education <laughs> you know but like yeah. I, I learned much I like yeah, I learned so much from it. Definitely. It was a little kingdom in itself, wasn't it? And and actually, Joe, who I mentioned then as my best friend, and we met at sixth form, but um, the summer mm. before we met, I remember listening to Mark Radcliffe and someone had sent in a postcard from Florida um, just saying he was loving being on Florida with his family but missing, um, missing listening to the show. And he said, and that was from Joe from Wigan. And I remember thinking, God, I wish I knew people like that who listened to... Mark Radcliffe, even though I'm living in Oregon. And, and then we met, and uh, it's like a lovely little... Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the footwear thing, you're saying about the, the Adidas, and I, I don't think we can underestimate yeah. the the joy of having worn sort of... I used to wear those paratrooper boots, but having gone from the weight of paratrooper boots to going to Adidas, <laughs> there was sort of this new yeah. springiness to, to everything because cause your feet weren't as heavy. <laughs> It's quite delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, the kind of going from plaid shirts to a tight T-shirt, Adidas T-shirt, yeah. is a big, yeah. big mm. change in style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I've gone back to plaid shirts now because I can't do yeah, the haven't tight T-shirts yeah. anymore. Me neither. <laughs> cool. So, yes, and I love the second episode as well, which, which I think there's a lot of room to talk about Beatles in this because you, it was called Happy Sad. Mm. And it was it was a really beautiful episode because you talked about the kind of emotional resonance of music and how it has its own kind of emotional language, and how that that kind of in a way hasn't changed over you know, mm -hmm. centuries. And but and and how you use this kind of motif of this like a kind of descending bassline or descending mm. melody, which is used in countless songs, um, you know, going back hundreds of years. Go, you know, using. Uh, Purcell's uh, uh, Dido's Lament as an example. Yeah.
the thing I was thinking of when I was listening to it was this, you know, this is so Beatlesy, isn't it? Because there are so many Beatles songs with either mm. descending chords or descending bass lines or, you know, you could nearly, I mean, so many, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, Dear, Dear Prudence. Uh, yes, I was thinking about that earlier, actually. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking actually too about the fact that the way that your relationship with an album, particularly with the Beatles album, I think really shifts. And probably, you know, when I first would hear it when I was a very small child, you know, you always love, you know, when I'm 64 or whatever. And Mm. then Mm. you go into liking the sad, you know, a day in the life or she's leaving home or whatever. Mm. And um, Mm. they must have those descending chords, I'm guessing, those happy sad ones. Yeah, for no one is probably the most prominent one that I remember first being like, oh, this is uh, the Anist. Because he's got, I think John Lennon's probably a bit more subtle in the way that he used them, whereas Paul is Paul is pop, is baroque pop. Which yeah, is, you know, cry baby cry, Lennon. Cry baby cry. It's, yeah. it's yeah. beautifully descending kind of. But there is, but the the point of the episode is there's something. I mean, it's in the blues, but this idea that as you're descending, you kind of you kind of know what's coming because you know you're going down another step, and it sort of has this world weariness to it, and it's kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, but it's, again, mm. with, because it's music, it's impossible to define what it is. But it is sad. You know? It's also yeah. they, you know, a lot of the the sort of thinking around is it is it that it mimics those human sighs or boo hoo hoo mm. or even the shape of the face, which slumps when you're sad, or the mm. slope of your shoulders, um, and all of those things. Hearing those sounds stimulate certain hormones within us. So that um, there is a degree Mm. of pleasure and self-soothing by listening to sad music. Um, I've got a book out next year which is about sad music. Oh, really? Oh, nice. Amazing. Hence, I can waffle on about it. You Never Give Me Your Money is the one I always think of when I think of that sort of very... Because it's got those sort of downward... Nine-eight suspensions for me is always... (laughs) Where it is in, in terms of that yeah. sort of, it's a slight, well, it's that kind of yearning, but yeah, it's only a step down from the note where you're sort of supposed to be. Yeah. So it's, and, and then that is uh, very much the same as the, yeah. as the Purcell. Yeah. Or Purcell, as I've realised everyone I know. else. We ha- I, I, my producer Was it tell- always Henry Purcell? Yes. I had to re-record that section because recording radio during really? the pandemic is really quite difficult. So, and I don't yeah. really know a great deal about classical music. Whereas my producer knows loads, he studied it, and so he <laughs> came out with all these notes where it was like per- person, and yeah, they just done all this. <laughs> yeah, sounds too washing powder exactly. for me. I'm going to stick with this <laughs> yeah. now. I think. Yeah. But I mean, I only just discovered, well, fairly recently, the jazz guitarist is called Pat Pat Metheny, and I've been calling him Pat Metheny for yeah. you know forty. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a few. But Metheny sounds like methane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should rethink oh, that. Metheny's so much cooler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, did you have a sort of predilection for sad music when you were sort of, well, throughout your whole life? I mean, I definitely yeah. do. Yeah. All the best people do. Mm. I mean, yes, I definitely Yeah. <laughs> definitely always have done and and it's been really fascinating to sort of look more closely at it and and work out why and all those kinds Mm. of things and um yeah everything from shape note singing in the u.s to you know um fardo um 
um, mm. you know, which some people call the saddest music in the world and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> mm. But a lot of yeah. them rest on that sort of essential idea of you can't, of suspension actually, and, and you can't go home again, you know, whether it's Duende or whether it's, you know, Garzals in South Asia, you know, they rest on this sort of limbo of desire and longing for mm. someone that you you love and you can't have, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, and I was, can I ask Jack a, a kind of musical question while we, if we, if we can get technical, mm. because in, in the, in the, in, in the radio show you mentioned the, the, the famous spinal tap quote that dm that, sorry d minor is the saddest of all keys but i've never quite understand i mean i, I think always that's thought... just a throwaway joke though i don't think there's but any there's, lo- there's loads of books that are about studying it that's in my book as well i can't remember all of them but for like centuries mm. different musicologists tried to assign different emotions to different keys I think G major is definitely um, a, a happier key, mm-hmm. um, and what most people people seem to say, right. or and also C sharp minor is the one a lot of people say is one of the saddest, probably because it's fucking pain to play. Well, that's the thing. I'm thinking <laughs> it must you really relate sad, to <laughs> it must relate to the to music in some way because uh, you know mm. as a as a guitarist, I feel like if you're playing an E minor or E major, it's going to be lower, going to be. Mm-hmm bassier and whereas if you're playing d it's going to be lighter because the d shape is using higher yeah but but i but i uh, but i always thought the spinal tap joke was a joke because there's no such thing as a sad key because all keys are fundamentally the same or am i completely naive (laughs) i mean i don't there's definitely i mean from my personal experience and from doing composition or whatever there are certain i would never write something that I thought was going to be very sad in something like A minor. Mm-hmm. Because a minor for me sad. it sounds... I think it's more... It has a different quality. I think... Really? I don't know. It's probably also to do with the where your hands fall when you're playing well, a piano. Well, so if I'm playing, you know, something like um, You Never Give Me Your Money or Golden Slumbers has that, yeah. starts with that beautiful A minor seventh or whatever it is. Mm. That's where your kind of hands naturally... So that's probably yeah. the reason why that's written in that key. Right. Whereas, I mean, I don't. I mean, I but don't didn't, know. But didn't the, um, Laura will probably she's writing it. <laughs> but did, didn't um, more than I will. Suzanne Vega. <laughs> Suzanne Vega said a great thing about you don't need to know many chords because A minor contains like all the sadness of the world or something. Didn't she? There's. But, I'm gonna have I to look know, up this quote. I, now, I yeah. probably feed that. I'm still doing edits, so we could probably feed that in still. But um, but people dispute that. You know, like <laughs> I think Beethoven. What did he call the saddest key? The black, the black key. It's the black like the, key. It was B minor. Like B minor, yeah. yeah. I might oh, yeah. be wrong. This yeah. is um, Suzanne Vega. All all the mysteries of life come in A minor. I quite like mm. that. Mm. Also, Alicia Keys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, for years, I thought that people, composers just wrote in very difficult keys, just sort of out of spite. Really, I think or they just do. To I still think show that they could. Yeah, there's a lovely bit in um, a Nicholson Baker book where he talks about Debussy's um, submerged cathedral. I'm mm. not going to say it in French, but he talks mm. about how brilliant it is that it's in C. It's because it just feels so kind of clear. I kind of weirdly clear, get that yeah. on a piano playing in C major yeah. it's mm. like this well like, yeah kind of it's beautiful the way it kind of you hear it the cathedral kind of becoming unsubmerged yeah. you know it comes yeah, out of yeah. the waters 
That oh. is often about where you end up with Debussy, not where you start. That's oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Well, it's about its whole tone, isn't it? So yeah. It's, uh, yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> about the journey, not the destination. Exactly. Sure. Let's not be bogged down in uh, harmonic colour. Yeah. I know. I just want that as like a live, well, love, live, laugh, love poster now. Is uh, yeah. Some yeah. Put it next to my prosecco o'clock. Oh, <laughs> I was going to ask as so as we're saying we're kind of I, I you know I, I sort of identified with the music you listened to growing up which included the Beatles and then for, for me when I was about 18 or 19 I got so heavily into Bonnie Prince Billy <laughs> and and I know that's he's a huge you're a huge fan of his as mm-hmm. well and I, I I sort of I mean there's not really a Beatles link because, and God knows I've tried to find one in the last <laughs> but but I do think that even though this was I mean I remember hearing it on John Peel for the first time another day full of dread mm. and I just remember like that voice and the scratchiness of it and the kind of the the how like someone talking to you it was the voice I suppose and it sounded so real and but then the thing that really what I loved about all those early Palace albums is the melody like he's a brilliant Mm. writer of melodies and I don't think I would have got that appreciation if I hadn't spent you know the last 10 years listening to basically the Beatles (laughs) so (laughs) like I think the Beatles informed my like uh, discernment of saying oh that's a good melody oh I like that Mm. you know you know I vividly I, I vividly remember you know, getting the I See a Darkness album just mm. blowing me away. So yeah. I wonder, like, so what was your experience of of that? You, you definitely got into that kind of American folk rootsy kind of music. How how did that kind of happen for you? I don't think I necessarily saw him as that initially. He was just this sort of isolated person who I thought was sort of mysterious and wonderful. It's not as if I, mm. yeah, I didn't align him with other things. I got, I love the I See a Darkness album, early Palace stuff. I remember my boyfriend at the time worked in a record store and would sort of, you know, steal all the records and make compilations each week. <laughs> and um, and he, I think he probably introduced me to them, or maybe Joe actually. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm really loving, was it Superwolf he did, Matt Sweeney in the... Oh, bed yeah. In, when you said about the melody, I immediately thought of that Bed is for Sleeping track um mm. which has the most extraordinary melody bed is for sleeping love is for making and you know love i am yours for the taking my eyes are for seeing the wind is for blowing and you see love i am yours for I think he probably made sense as well because I was already very into Bill Callahan, and I think I probably paired them in my head. Mm. I'd bought mm. a Smog album after going to, yeah. I think, the first Bowley Festival uh, at Camber Sands. And oh I'd, yeah, so like yeah, and that, there was ATP. Like, yeah, <laughs> and mm. um, and there was maybe it was the first ATP even actually, and there was a little booklet. Probably was a the first ATP. A booklet where you could, they did little descriptions of um, 
records that you could then send a check off and then they would post them back to you in this sort of really time-consuming retro way I mean it wasn't retro at the time it was that felt very modern um and I bought smog knock knock through that and a couple of other ones um so I probably was quite fascinated by those kinds of voices and that kind of Americanness. Mm. but I I don't think I, I don't think I'd been to America briefly for a day once f- from Canada. I'd never I wasn't really interested mm. in American culture in the way that I am I w- became. Um mm. and then I probably got really into sort of um more like the white stripes and the strokes and moldy peaches and that kind of stuff. Mm. And then yeah. came back into mm. Americana, I suppose. That's a really mm. sort of rambling yeah. answer for you. No, no. It's, yeah, mm. it's, 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 uh, I mean, it was a very, very un-Beatles-y question. Sorry. No, no, no. But, you know, in, we can say that, that in a way it was a sort of back-to-the-landishness like Paul McCartney mm. probably did. There's probably some kind of very yeah. tenuous link there for us. Well, and, and definitely we're talking about, you know, the, the Joe from Wigan Postcard. I, I love that era where it was slightly pre-internet. And so mm-hmm. trying to get hold of all these things, like Will Oldham produced so much stuff that was really rare. And it was all about, you know, finding this CD mm-hmm. in some record shop or, you know, paying way over the odds for a Japanese-only kind of edition. Yeah, or something. Sure all that point. kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And having the confidence in those days to go in to go into a record store and ask for something you didn't quite understand what it was. I mean, who was Bonnie Prince, Billy, Will Oldham, Palace Brother? What was it? And who were they? And how did we unravel them? You know, that took a bit of guts at the time. Mm. I remember like going to London to to see him live whenever we'd go and see him live, and you know, again pre. Google trying to find the venue and you just follow all these like black room spectacles wearing people. Yeah. <laughs> you just like, That's so my true. people. And Those just, are my people. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's great. funny. I guess, do yeah. we still have that as much now? There used to be that real thing. If you were just even walking through a town, you just saw one of your people and there was almost a yeah. sort of slight nod. I don't know that people do that so much. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they do. We're just older. I mean, I yeah. I met someone at uni because they were wearing a Bell and Sebastian t-shirt, like someone um, I know now and I'm still yeah. friends with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. I've done totally yeah. 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 I used to live very near Brixton Academy and it was always quite a fun game playing, looking at everyone getting off the tube and guessing the band. Yeah. You know, obviously, t-shirts gave the game away, but it was. I think it was relatively easy to. You could yeah. narrow it down to sort of three or four mm. bands. That's something. There's a very funny ticket tout outside Brixton Academy, isn't there? Because like sometimes like the really weird band names. Mm. And he's obviously never heard of them. Tyler <laughs> the Creator. Tyler <laughs> the Creator. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. <laughs> I just feel it makes me feel ill every time because all, all, all through my youth it was T-shirt Survivor really tops mm. a tenner. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, you wouldn't get. You'd yeah, nothing, you can't yeah, even yeah. get a pint for a tenner. No, in no, no, no not in London. Yeah. Yeah. So, Laura, your cat. Is cool. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. McCartney. Now, my first cat or, was called uh, former cat. First Your cat. first cat. Former yeah. cat. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace, Paul McCartney. Uh, in fact, he, he got um, very chubby and, and he became known as Fat, fat Paul. Uh, and then he ran off to live on a farm. But now I think about it may have been my parents not telling us. That he'd, well, in he'd character. Died. Yes, in character. Well, maybe he just meant to make a divisive record in Scotland. Well, yeah, would, the cat version of Mullock and Tyre would be something to behold. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, did you? You never had a sort of jo- Johnny Renaissance. Uh, it was, I suppose that sort of scratchiness that you're talking about, and the kind of, mm. you know, there's that authenticity is kind of there in '70s solo John records. Yeah. Where you just sort of was it something at the time you weren't interested? in? I or? just didn't really know about it, to be honest. I mean, no criticism mm. of my parents, but I it, when I was younger, I didn't know about it, and. Um, mm. I was thinking about this the other day because actually when I was interviewing Duran Duran because I was thinking about how I never was really into Duran Duran. They were slightly before my time. But I do remember these mm. little magazines you used to get that would have whoever was the sort of reigning pop band and who was the sort of new upcoming pop band alongside them. So it'd be like Duran Duran versus Aha. See what I mean? And I think I kept this mm. sort of narrative in my head for quite a long time that, that it was always someone versus someone else, which makes me sound really competitive. I'm just yeah. completely not. Yeah. yeah. But I. But it was a bit like when grunge came along, I thought you couldn't like both Pearl Jam and Nirvana. You had to choose no. a team. And I think I felt a yeah, bit like that. You still can't, in my opinion. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, sure. Yes. And I think I carried a little bit into John and and Paul, really. And I guess I thought... Right, that's interesting. I kind of probably thought John split up the Beatles and therefore was... I don't know. I just didn't... But then when I did hear those solo records, they blew my mind and I absolutely fucking loved them. Mm. And I interviewed Yoko Ono quite a few years back and um, wow. and I, I loved her too and I love her artwork and I have this mm. reverence for them and this sort of sense of apology mm. almost towards them that I didn't, I didn't know about mm. them for so long. How how was Yoko? That's amazing. She, I mean, she was. Um, I just loved her. She just had this great presence. It was it was during a time when I felt I, I had did a run of sort of rock widow interviews of sort of, um, Deborah Curtis and Courtney Love and and Yoko and um, uh, Yoko was you know slightly batshit, but that's what you want from her. And then she gave <laughs> yeah. she gave me some gifts at the end, a little torch. And um, oh. and a little one of those Fisalis fruit things from the fruit bowl in the hotel, mm. and um, well, so it was just next to her, and she was like, yeah, she was "Have like, this, yeah, yeah. 
anything is a gift. Yeah, anything and is some hard shampoo. To be <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, from yeah. Me. please, please take all the miniature coffee filters. And she, um, yeah. I remember going. Maybe it was. It must have been before then. Being in Detroit, I've been to Detroit. Went sort of right at the height of the sort of garage rock revival thing mm. going on in Detroit, and uh, with my friend Amy and um, and we were walking home one night and stumbled across one of her artworks in the centre of Detroit. It was this sort of um, it was a railroad carriage, and you could hear voices inside it. It was sort of it was to commemorate some immigrants who had been stranded in the desert. Um, trying to make it into America in a railroad and then just abandoned in a carriage, trapped in a carriage and whatever. I mean, it was a really distressing story. But it, that was one of the things mm. that sort of shifted my opinion of Yoko and what she might have been trying to do with her relationship with John, really, I suppose. Um, mm. And then that shifted my relationship again with the music and, um, yeah, slightly circuitous mm. route to the John, John's solo albums. Yeah, the Plastic Ono Band album is... And the John Lennon solo in general, the stuff that I've definitely came to later. Mm. But I mean, I, I, I mean, listening to the reissue of the Plastic Ono Band, which came out the other week, which I think is fantastic, mm-hmm. is and the thing that I strikes me, which I guess I didn't notice before, is it. I I kind of categorize it into one of those albums like Astral Weeks or. Um, in in the aeroplane over the sea, maybe where it's mm. really it's just complete, you know, getting it all out there. It's so mm. honest and mm. and beautiful, and and you know, I, I I mean, I think I knew songs before, like love, and thinking mm. they're a bit mm. cheesy because if you hear it out of context, it might sound like that. But then in the context yeah. of the album, it's just part of this just just kind of just brutal honesty, which is just mm. yeah. so amazing about that record. No, exactly. Um, and that's kind of the respite in that record where, mm. it, you know, something on Imagine, which would be a sort of something a bit more parodic. Mm. Yeah. For that, you sort of lean in from sort of gut-wrenching, soul-spilling into yeah. just like sentiment. Which is, and I wonder, I mean, yeah. I don't know the answer to this, but the timing of it is interesting. I do, I want, I mean, they don't sound alike, but I wonder if John heard Astral Weeks, though. I don't know. Right. Almost. What's Astral Week? Sixty nine. Yeah. Sixty nine. Almost, almost, almost certainly. Yeah. 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 He must have done. I don't think they're that similar, though, are they? But well, similar in just how expressive, I suppose. They are. Yeah, as in sort of impressionistic stream of consciousness. So. Yeah, and also release from previous sort of perceptions of you, that kind of thing. I think there's something yeah, probably quite similar yeah. with that. I have a funny, I mean, everyone has a funny relationship with Imagine, but um, when I took a gap year in the Middle East, I had to, um, I was with this group of people and we had to teach in a school for a bit. And I just remembered earlier that we all had to teach a Beatles song and I had right. to teach Imagine. <laughs> so it's just, I just yeah, okay. memories of being like, sitting with a group of sort of 17-year-old Israelis going, what does Imagine make you think of? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And did yeah. it solve everything? It did, and everything is, is fine now in, that's in good. between. Yeah. Oh, that's you good. You've seen in the, in the news this week, yeah. Yeah, Imagine is a weird one. I mean, like, it's, that's the only solo record my dad had. He's had all the Beatles records and he, and he had mm-hmm. Imagine, which I think was the case for maybe a lot of people. And it's one of the ones I, I, I really loved it. 
Um, and I absolutely loved How Do You Sleep. I, I just thought mm. it was funny. I just thought it really rocked. I thought it's such a cool riff. Mm. <laughs> but I yeah. just yeah. like I just uh, I just made me feel sad because it wasn't the Beatles when I was young. Basically, yeah. <laughs> like I didn't love it I as much because other... it just made me feel sad. Yeah. No, I can totally understand that. I think um I think I also just thinking about it now probably had a slightly odd feeling towards John because so many young men when I was growing up tried to look mm. like John Lennon in the Northwest. Right. You know, with the little yeah. buses and the mm. haircut and whatever. Yeah. It was just yeah. this sort of felt it all felt try hard and I put their try hardiness onto mm. John himself, which was unfair of me. And I'd yeah. like to apologize. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if he's listening. It's also incredibly hard to pull off that look as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I it's mean, probably... Liam Gallagher. Yeah. So you, as, as you mentioned, you sort of came of age right in the smack bang middle of Britpop. So when there was mm. the big um, sort of Beatles renaissance that sort of happened around the anthology, was mm. that something that you sort of got into or did you kind of, you'd already done that? I got into it. I just think there were so many... There's just so much going on then mm. that it... Because it seemed a little bit cynical. I mean, I was pretty young. Yeah. But, you know, I was sort of, I was just on, you know, I'm a few years younger than Robin, so I remember sort of What Story Morning Glory and I just felt like I was about six months too late to properly get into yeah. sort of Britpop. And by that time it did, I already loved the Beatles and it just almost seemed like sort of pastiche. Oh, it was t it was total pastiche, and I worked in a record store at the time that What's the Story came out, and um, it was quite astonishing how Beatles Beatles records the sales of Beatles records went up at the same time as as that all came out, you know, and, mm. and it was a very strange time. But I don't think I d I've never been a sort of big. I was going to say I don't really like sort of box sets anthologies. I don't really like anniversaries so much mm. as such as my. Mentioning of is there something going on with Ram? <laughs> I mean, I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I occasionally get asked to write about these things, and I will do it. But I just, yeah. um, I think at that age, you know, you're kind of more certainly by the time Oasis were basically just playing at being the Beatles, it was a bit embarrassing. Mm. And again, you know, Oasis a Northern band, and I felt I was very into pulp, and that was mm. my Britpop. Really, I found that. Yeah. I found, you know, I liked the first. Oasis record that was exciting mm. um, yeah I'd met them while I was on a caravan holiday in Penrith um, <laughs> really so some nice. kind of claim to fame <laughs> early stage but yeah what was that when they were were they recording down there or was it just the... no I have absolutely no idea why they were there uh, <laughs> oh actually maybe it was just bone the band used to come into Wigan to go to the pier nightclub because it was one of very few indie nightclubs in the northwest and was quite fated for absolutely no reasons um <laughs> but um i do you know what maybe it was just bonehead because i remember we were in penrith i was only 16 or something and we stayed in my grandparents caravan and then we were in a pub me and my friend janice and um and we met this guy called matthew who was wearing i don't know why i've remembered all this detail wearing a just say no like a zamo <laughs> t-shirt and he told us about his cousin who was bonehead bonehead and um and mm. i think bonehead and and some of the others were there in this bar in penrith and he was like yeah they've just signed a big record deal and we were like yeah whatever 
Um, we thought they were really square because they didn't have dreadlocks. We were just into dreadlocks at the time. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's a random the, brick park but that's yeah. the most, grunge intersection for you. Yeah. That's the most nineties statement yeah. ever made. Yeah. I wasn't into yeah. Oasis because they didn't have dreadlocks. <laughs> they didn't have dreadlocks. <laughs> It would have been a very different Short band. Yeah. Hair, you say no. Yeah. It'll never catch yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, there was that. It's interesting that though, because like, I, yeah, I remember like a couple of times where my brother would play me something and go, "Oh, listen to this." I just heard this, and one time was "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and obviously mm. mind blown. And the other time was uh, "Supersonic," and just mm. like thinking that was just you know something about it was just completely amazing and my oh, brother's yeah, very good at brilliant. listening to music and picking out the and it's hard it's, it's, it's hard to think now with oasis just how kind of you know they they admit they became kind of quite you know a bit shite uh, just yeah okay that's, yeah shite <laughs> but you know at the time it's just it was there was so much it was part of that kind of very interesting, like 93, 94 was very interesting because mm-hmm. there's so much different music going on. And we kind of forget that, you know, we everyone was listening to like, you know, there was hip hop and drum and bass and there was indie and there's bands like Suede. Mm-hmm. And then Oasis releasing Supersonic was just like part of the melting pot and it just sounded amazing, it, you know. It really, really was. I mean, also things like... I oh, know that they were later Spice Girls, weren't they? But it was just like this sort of... I mean, I'm not saying I was a big Spice... I wasn't a big Spice Girls fan, but it was just like this bizarre collision of music yeah. that if you did yeah. go to um like an indie night you everything it, the span of it was actually quite immense you know um, yeah yeah i suppose it was the sort of peak of the power of like major record labels and indie re- record labels working in a sort of cohesive way with mainstream mm. whatever it was radio one or you know, yeah. And just everything was so ubiquitous and seemed to be symbiotic for that brief period before the internet came and blew everything up. Like It definitely felt like the bubble mm. was, was burst in, in quite a yeah. spectacular way, which is why people still bang on about Britpop as the last mm. time that we had a sort of, you know, a sort of shared cultural trajectory of yeah. what people were listening well, we to. Also, and... When did Top of the Pops end, you know, because I think we, that was a sort of blueprint Late for a lot of stuff. you think, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 2006 mm. or something, but it had been dead in the water for 10 years or something. Yeah, mm. because that was such a sort of blueprint for sort of cultural collision and that it was allowed to have mm. this random selection yeah. of music in one place. And then I do remember sitting on the kitchen table at home and, and reading Nirvana lyrics with my friend and us singing along mm. to Nirvana, but with the lyrics from Smash Hits, which now seems nuts to me as well, you know, that yeah. a mm. pop that seems so weird. Nirvana. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I work in the MTV building and the idea of Nirvana mm. being anywhere near any MTV channel now is just <laughs> yeah. sort of crazy, yeah. but that's the mainstream, was, that was what it was. But I suppose yeah. going back to sort of, that makes the Beatles' achievement even more incredible when you think of the spectacular success that people had in those times and just no one was able to carry the pressure in the way mm-hmm. that they did and sort of you know the the Beatles should have really made like a big coke fueled mess record that was yeah. three hours long or know. you know that should have there be here now but the fact that they made to something sort of cultivated and really or, or also um, like amazing that they didn't just do a really shit tv show 
for, that they got paid loads. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like Scott Walker had a TV show, which I'm sure was actually really good looking back. But like, okay. um, you know, like the Beatles presents like a light entertainment show. They could have very yeah. easily gone down that route. But they kind I of, mean. I mean, they almost did that, didn't they? They Ooh, did, I mean, yeah. I suppose they were too big for the infrastructure of that yeah. sort of thing by that point. Well, definitely in the early days. I mean, the, the but Royal Yellow Variety. Submarine, you know, they had their own yeah. film. Yeah. And, the, they and they did Pantos up until, like, 60... Much later than you'd think. <laughs> later than... The, I want to say 65, but it's probably 64. But they like, yeah, yeah. slightly Why odd. Why didn't they make a really duff Coke? Is that because they had to make so much stuff... Or they made stuff faster, or was that because they had an art college background? Or I think they just they just broke up at exactly the right time. Yeah, that's probably true. Like I think if they'd been around like just a couple more years, they would have been the real Coke frenzy album. I think they also cared more than those people, though. I don't think they were really the the, the sort of sheen of being like you know if you look at the the sort of Gallagher's or a lot of people around in the nineties, a lot of that was about emulating what happened in the 60s and just yeah. being mm-hmm. rock stars and being lads or whatever. It's like Beatles yeah. weren't really interested in that. It, no, the Beatles, no. like, the music always kind of came first and they were much more interested in their craft than those yeah. people. So the stakes were higher for them to... And also, I think they had a really good relationship with their own kind of legacy, whereas they, yeah. they believed the hype, but they mm. were only competitive with themselves. So I think that helps. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Mm. It's also weird to think that, you know, Paul, Mac- like the song Let It Be, like that came about because Paul McCartney had been doing way too much coke. Yeah. <laughs> I've like, been taking too much. And that's like such a weird cocaine. So it's not how other kind of uh, coke I songs know, sound. But I can't imagine Paul McCartney <laughs> on coke. That to me in itself no, is. No, me such neither. An image. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's, like, it's like. Yeah, so I think they're just the very different personalities. They weren't kind of... Maybe it was just better Coke, I don't know. In those yeah. Days. yeah. <laughs> but it's like that thing you're saying of, like, you know, every, everyone has to have a, a comparison with which to measure sort of any mm. sort of cultural phenomenon, which is where, you know, you have Beatles and Stones and you had Lennon McCartney post-Beatles and I think with Britpop there was a... Actually, the comparison to the 60s is is not... Very apt, I don't think. No, and I think also in the nineties, people were really were really looking for a cultural moment. Yeah. Because I remember that there was a Guardian thing in the nineties where it was like, oh, sixty six was a great year, seventy seven was a great year, <laughs> uh, the year of punk. Eighty eight was the second summer of love. Ninety nine's gonna be good, and it was like yeah. Travis the Man Who, which is a good album. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I found that it was I like, found the sort of soggy end of that of Britpop quite hard. Well, you know, when it got yeah, to that Travis was a bit. Yeah, mm. and we needed the Strokes. Let's say we did, we needed. The we did. We desperately needed the Strokes. But but it was. But I think that was part of the '90s way of where it became a decade of looking back and nostalgia, where it was really it was about trying to find that defining moment, mm. and it mm-hmm. maybe not often arriving yeah or maybe it was just it it wasn't where we were looking i guess is probably yeah of course yeah exactly it wasn't Mm. it wasn't guitar music for example it was going on elsewhere yeah i really wanted to ask you about van morrison (laughs) Ryan, because, <laughs> do you mind talking about this or no? Or no, I'm traumatized. Of course, no, it's, it's completely <laughs> fine. It's completely fine. So, like, the, 
So I'm sure some listeners may know that Laura Barton interviewed Van Morrison a couple of years ago, and it was definitely one of his notoriously <laughs> uncommunicative interviews. And I just wondered, like, how how do you feel now? And I wondered also, had you have you read the Will Hodgkinson interview with him that was in the Times a couple of weeks mm. ago, where yeah. he was just yeah, where he was nice to him. a Van Morrison was really nice. B Will Hodgkinson, great writer, but didn't really challenge him on the COVID scepticism and some of the other, like, actually pretty unsavoury implications of the new album, which is, like, yeah. songs like they... what's There's a song called They Run the Media or something, or They Run oh, the Oh, yeah, media. there's that, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, so I wonder, crazy. like... Yeah, like, so I wonder, how do you feel now about that interview after... This has happened to Van and that interview was funny. I mean, I I should say, and I've said it in other places before that um, uh, I had been trying to interview Van for years. Every time he would have a new album, I would say to whoever's doing his PR, you know, I'd love to do this interview. I, and I do. I've been listening to Van Morrison. He's like the sort of apart from Bruce Springsteen. In fact, way back before Bruce Springsteen, he's he's been this sort of force, you know, in my life because my parents were huge Van Morrison fans. Um, so I know so much about him and know his music intimately. And um, But every time it would go to other people, and when I say people, I mean white men of a certain age. And, um, mm. and you know, I remember when he did a jazz album, I got asked by management to send effectively my jazz CV. I had to prove how much I knew about jazz. And I, it just so happens I, did, I do actually quite know quite a bit about jazz because my dad is yeah. jazz. But, like... Yeah. Um, I remember thinking, did you know Michael Han, another Guardian colleague or former Guardian colleague? He, um, he interviewed Van for a blues record. I don't think he had to send his blues CV. So you know, mm. I'm just going to make the point that I'm not surprised he got on well with Will. I mean, Will, Will's a good friend of mine. I, I'm not mm. surprised he got on well with Will and with a lot of other mm. and with Michael Han, who doesn't really know anything mm. about Van Morrison. There's a, a you know a shared factor there. Um, mm. As regards that interview, you know, I, I, it has not affected how I feel about his, I was going to say his, his music, I mean his back catalogue. Um, mm. I uh, I still love it. I, one of the things I did after the interview is I went back to my hotel room and I listened to his, I made myself listen to like Lyndon Arden. Um, and another, because the frustrating thing about that interview is he was, you know... <laughs> so willfully not showing the beautiful side of himself which i do think he yeah. clearly has in him um, yeah and it was yeah. such a peculiar setup as regards his new stuff i mean you know what can you say yeah <laughs> yeah it's almost not worth paying any attention to yeah I, I i can't yeah. bring myself to listen to it because it's just i've like, not listened to it's just like a neighbor sounding off yeah, yeah. completely and i th- i thought alexis's alexis petridis is Review in the Guardian. Oh yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, impeccable review. So um, he said he's surprised there isn't a song on there complaining about the parking by the school <laughs> or that the repair shop is the best <laughs> yeah. thing on TV. Yeah. It was very very funny. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I think that was a good thing with Van that he has such a strong back catalogue, which is which is so old now and it's so easy to make that distinction 
between who, who Van is now and who he was then. Mm. Yeah, I haven't listened to the uh, 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 new stuff, but it hasn't stopped my enjoyment of you know, Astral Weeks and Wiedenfleet and those records mm. at all. I would love I would love him to work with, and I kind of broached it in the article, but in the interview, but um, I'd love him to work with some of the new British jazz players I'd, um, mm. or American. I, I'd love him. I'd love him to work with Bonnevere. Yeah. I'd love him to work with really interesting mm. musical minds who could communicate with him. Yeah, like a Yusuf Davies uh, Van Morrison record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. just like someone who pushes him. Um, yeah, yeah. It's especially at a time where there seems to be so many sort of scepter octogenarians making such incredible music with yeah. a real kind of still yeah. with all that their fire is still there but with I mean I suppose with Aaron Russell hasn't been there for years but but because for someone so interested in money which let's face mm. facts is why he's complaining about lockdown is uh I'm surprised like Tom Jones did a brilliant thing you know Tom Jones did a kind of quite straightforward bluesy record a while ago kind of in mm. the light yeah, of the Johnny three, Cash kind of ones uh, yeah, yeah. Really, that's really yeah. good. But he's, but Tom. I thought it was an interview with Tom Jones. Where he said, "If that's what's selling, I want to do that." <laughs> like that kind of thing. And yeah. like he's just, but like that would that could be Van. Why, why isn't Van well, doing know, Van his hurt started, moment? You know? Started churning out those records after his very expensive divorce. I think really. I remember mm, my, yeah. my dad, who is an accountant, sort of saying that smacks of somebody's got a, a massive tax bill. Um, when yeah, he just kept yeah. doing, here's a blues record, here's a jazz record, here's a whatever. Yeah. Um, and then when he was doing those, actually, though, I was quite hopeful. I saw him, I, I saw him at a tiny gig in West London, and he was happy. He was, it was the first mm. time in a long time I'd seen him happy, and I thought, out of these sort of covers albums, I think something really special is going to happen. Mm. And I think probably I blew it for everybody by pissing him off. I mean, look, apparently, he, he, apparently he liked my interview. That was the shocking thing. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Apparently wow. he said I got Bizarre. it. It was about the music. Really? Mm. I mean, I could have written it far more cruelly. Uh, one question that we ask everyone on the podcast is, uh, do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? I don't listen to them that often. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I mean, That's whenever I hear them, I, th I have on this like, I, I, yeah, exactly. Sorry, everyone. Um, whenever I do, I think, God, this band are great. <laughs> like, yeah. not in a kind of, they're going to do well, but more of, um, um, aren't we lucky to have this huge mm. supply of songs? There's nothing like cleaning the house mm. and putting on the Beatles and being like, oh my God, every single song is majestic. Mm. So that was our brilliant chat with Laura Barton. I really enjoyed that one. What did you think? Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I thought it was just really lovely to talk to her. I think she's got such a sensitive, uh, intelligent way of talking about music, and it's refreshing. She's not afraid to be sincere about music. I think you know, mm. and I, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, it's not really been a problem for you, all right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, I loved. I loved uh, hearing those kind of. I mean, it just makes me think the podcast is really about formative experiences with music, yeah, isn't it? That's yeah, what we yeah. always come back to. So it's always about these kind of music you heard in the, as a kid and the effect it kind of has on you. Um, but yeah, really good episode. 
Yeah, another one that could have just gone on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I think I did mention, we talked about uh, Beethoven's use of uh, B minor. Yeah. I think it's actually C minor. Oh, you idiot. Which is a relatively, that... I mean, actually a very uncommon key in the classical period, but yeah. Beethoven bloody loved the guy. Right. And we managed to st- avoid the topic of Springsteen. Yes. Which is, because uh, she is a huge Springsteen fan. She's a fan. huge Springsteen fan. And uh, Jack I and I. I am not. Jack, not. Not so much. I mean, I, I like him, but I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. But we, we kind of, we did manage to kind of uh, navigate around talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I sort of have a kind of a preternatural hatred of him due to the amount of stuff I missed at Glastonbury 2009 because I had to... Th- sit through three and a half hours of that anyway good stuff well thank you very much for listening um do you join the patreon if you would like to hear a extended version of that and all other episodes um as mentioned at the beginning of the show we've got a brilliant episode uh with ellis james where we went around abbey road and got stupidly emotional about pieces of recording equipment and uh yeah that's a really really fun one Hmm. You can go to patreon.com slash personal Beatles and keep following us on the social medias and we'll see you next Tuesday. Uh, great episode coming up with Jim Murray. It's a really interesting episode, actually, with Jim Murray. Uh, Jim is a folk musician, an English folk musician, brilliant songwriter, arranger, singer of traditional songs. And, yeah, we talk a lot about the folk world, how that interacts with the Beatles. Um, there's a an album called Rubber Folk, which Jim Murray features on, which is folk... <laughs> Uh, singers singing Beatles songs, which is really good. And we also talk about Bright Phoebus, which is the kind of lost album by Lallan Mike Waterson, which is often called the kind of Sergeant Pepper of the folk world. So it's kind of a really interesting kind of wide-ranging chat about folk music in general as well. So it's a, it's a really good one. So all that to look forward to next Tuesday. We'll see you then. Bye! Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.